0: This is Kick-Ass News, I'm Ben Mathis. Intercom is the business messaging platform that does the manual work for you, automatically qualifying leads and scheduling demos. Their chatbot and messenger free you up to focus on the prospects most likely to convert. You can leave your pipeline to chance, or you could use Intercom. Start for free at intercom.com growth. That's intercom.com slash g-r-o-w-t-h. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Every day, there seems to be a new revelation in the Trump-Russia investigation. But with the steady drip of information, as well as a healthy dose of deliberate disinformation, it's easy to lose sight of the big picture. But now Michael Isikoff of Yahoo News and David Korn of Mother Jones Magazine and MSNBC, two veteran journalists who were among the first to report the story, team up in a masterwork of investigative journalism that gathers the information you already know and a lot that you don't know into a sweeping narrative of how Russia influenced the 2016 election and how the Trump campaign helped them do it. It's called Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. And today, Mike and David join me on the podcast to discuss Russia's long-simmering plan to use technology to undermine American democracy and how the U.S. intelligence community failed to see the warning signs. They delve into the rogues' gallery of Russia's enablers from Paul Manafort to Carter Page and analyze the weirdly coincidental timing and seemingly coordinated messaging between the Trump campaign and the Russian cyber attackers. They talk about President Trump's strange infatuation with Vladimir Putin, why President Obama didn't do more to stop Russian interference in 2016, and shed some light on just what may have happened in that Moscow hotel room in 2013. Coming up with Michael Isakoff and David Korn in just a moment. Michael Isikoff is chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News, and David Korn is Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones magazine and an analyst for MSNBC. Both of these veteran reporters are authors of multiple New York Times bestsellers, including their newest collaboration, Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. David and Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to be here. Good to be with you. Well, throughout 2016, you were both individually following the story of the Russian election interference and pursuing leads of the possible collusion between the Kremlin and the Trump campaign. At what point did it dawn on you that there might be more to this than we knew at the time?
1: I think it was pretty clear by the the summer of uh, 2016, by the Republican convention, Mm -hmm. that this was going to be a a big issue, Um, that, uh, you know my first stories on this were about Paul Manafort who had been selected as the campaign chairman and it turned out had all these ties to the pro-russian political party in mm-hmm. in Ukraine had taken millions of dollars as a consultant for them had the this business relationship with this very powerful billionaire Russian oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, um, who was pursuing him in litigation in the Cayman Islands. And Deripaska is an interesting figure. He was uh, uh, had been barred from entering the United States because the FBI had concerns about his ties to organized crime. Uh, he was known as uh, one of the two or three closest uh, oligarchs to Putin. And um, uh, here was uh, a um, a relationship uh, that was going on between him and, uh, and a business dispute going on between him and the chairman of the Trump presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. I thought that was wow. significant. I didn't know how it turned out to be <laughs> much more significant than I understood at the time. So you had that. You had Michael Flynn, who was emerging as a major character, gave the famous speech at the Republican convention, lock her up, lock her up, uh, who had his own ties to Russia, had, been, uh, uh, had, had flown there for the 10th anniversary of Russia. Uh, Russia Today and sat next to Vladimir Putin. Uh, And then you had Carter Page, uh, this foreign policy advisory member, board member of Trump's campaign who flies to Moscow and gives a speech denouncing U.S. uh, policy uh, on Russia. All of this struck me as very odd. And then, of course, the final punch is Uh, We knew that the Russians had hacked the DNC, but the very next week, the Democratic Convention and uh, they start dumping the emails through WikiLeaks uh, and causing this huge disruption at the Democratic Convention. It was clear something was going on Mm -hmm. with Russia that was very big and very significant. How about you, David? When did this become real for you? Come the end of August –
2: There were indications, though the administration wasn't talking about it at all, hadn't even confirmed it was a Russian attack, although kind of suggested it had been but not officially confirmed it. Uh, You had Senator Harry Reid and other Democrats start raising questions about connections between Trump associates and Russia in the context of the ongoing Russian attack. And it became really um, obvious to me that this was an area that needed some reporting. It was also an area that was incredibly difficult to report on. Um, I was hearing from people in the national security uh, community that everybody inside it was kind of freaking out because of the notion that there was something going on between the campaign and Russia. Not necessarily that the campaign was directly you know, conspiring with Russian agents to mount this attack, but that the Russians might have penetrated the campaign or that there was some modus vivendi or some agreement of some sort, sub rosa, between Trump or people around him and the Russians to, you know, help each other one way or the other, particularly if Trump gets elected president. And this became really hard to report out. Mm -hmm. Um, It seemed to be kind of a common assumption within the national security crowd that there, was, that there were connections. And we now, now, now know that in the middle of the summer, the FBI began a counterintelligence operation looking at these things and the connections you know, between Carter Page and Paul Manafort, George Papadopoulos, nobody really heard of during the campaign, were things that had troubled them and they were investigating. Uh, and Mike had one of the first stories in September that it gave was the a, first story, actually. Yeah, okay, the very be, first story. Just to be precise. <laughs> but it was also one yeah. of the first stories. Both both statements are true. Um, that that you know gave us a hint right. of what was going on, and I'll let him talk about that because then a few weeks later. I followed up with mm-hmm. the story in the steel dossiers that gave sort of a wider view of what was going mm-hmm.
0: on. I want to ask you guys specifically about the Russian attacks and what their strategy was, because I, I think you say in the book it goes all the way back to a memo by a Kremlin general yeah, at the, some the point. The Gerasimov
1: doctrine. Yeah, general yeah. Uh, Garasimov was the chief of staff of the Russian army, and mm-hmm. he wrote this uh, article in a uh, obscure military journal uh, in uh, in 2014, uh, two thousand fourteen. Thirteen. 2013, in which he sort of um, uh, talked about the future of warfare for the Russian military and making the point that um, uh, times had changed. The – the concept of the battlefield had changed where in the past uh, wars were thought of as conflicts between uh, uh, armies and fighter jets and battleships. Uh, now uh, war ha- was evolving into a new arena in which um, uh, the homelands were the fronts through um, uh, through digital space and mm-hmm. uh, that uh, war One way of uh, waging war was to disrupt the enemy behind enemy lines through the use of information uh, uh, warfare, Mm -hmm. uh, disinformation, uh, propaganda, Mm -hmm. and also uh, using the tools of social media to disrupt uh, and sow discord behind enemy lines, uh, uh, stirring up and weakening your adversary. And one of the things that was – if you go back and look at it now, that's particularly chilling
2: about that talk is that he says part of this is about exploiting the divisions that already exist within the population of your foe. Yeah. I mean that's just chilling because if you look at what they did – 3 years later with their social media campaign run by a troll farm mm-hmm. in St. Petersburg called the Internet Research Agency, you know, they put out stuff you know, about Black Lives Matter, but also about, you know, you know, you know, gun gun rights and immigration and they were able to see where the cleavages are within American political society yeah. and just try to, you know, do what they can to inflame these conflicts. So they were. Mm-hmm. It was like you know. In some ways, it's very Cold Warish. We can look at the weak, you know, uh, West, you know, you the, know, the, and, 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 and and exploit their own weaknesses against them. Yeah, it's
0: nothing new about this. The Russians have used these tactics for decades. It's only the technology that's changed. And of course, the Chinese have attempted to hack campaigns going all the way back to at least the 2008 election. So why was this different?
1: The Russians had a phrase uh, for disinformation, active measures, which Mm -hmm. they had used uh, historically during the Cold War. Now, you know, the Cold War was a ideological conflict in which the U.S. did much to disrupt uh, 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 and weaken uh, perceived communist threats around the world as well. And uh, uh, some of that w- turned into some pretty ugly stuff. Uh, but I think most U.S. officials, uh, it, certainly the foreign policy establishment, believed uh, uh, by that the cold war was over mm-hmm. and we'd won the cold war and, uh, you know, Russia was, uh, no longer a, a major threat, but you know, the, the, uh, Gerasimov doctrine is so significant because, you know, everybody focused in 2016 on the hacks, the hacks right. of the DNC, yeah, the hacks say. of, 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 of the John Podesta emails. Mm-hmm. And they were an important component of this, yeah. uh, no doubt. Uh, Uh, But hacking itself uh, was not new. The Chinese hacked uh, the Obama and uh, McCain campaigns in 2008, but it was – Political. It was, it was cyber espionage. They were trying to gather information about the key principles in the campaign, people who might become uh, senior officials in the mm-hmm. next administration so that they could understand you know, where the U.S. government was going to take uh, foreign policy, particularly as it related to China. Um, but what the Russians did was something very different. They hacked and then they dumped. They were trying to influence the American electorate. They mm-hmm. were trying to sway public opinion, disrupt. And then when you put on top of that something we didn't know at the time and only came to learn later, and that was the social media component, the use of Facebook, the use of Twitter, using phony identities to uh, adopt the personas of uh, Americans when they were really Russian operatives in in St. Petersburg who were spewing all sorts of political propaganda aimed for this same purpose.
0: Yeah. From what I can tell, there were three main components to this multi-pronged attack. There were the email hacks, the disinformation campaign on social media, and then there was this massive attempt to compromise voter registrations in just about every state. And in the Senate hearings on this, we were assured by the head of the NSA that there was no evidence that the Russians had succeeded in rigging the election or changing the outcome. Do we really know that for a fact? It wasn't
2: quite an attempt to compromise. What it was was penetrating and probing state election systems. And, you know, we have this crazy, quote, system in America where all elections are run locally. Right. So there are, you know, a lot of different systems, mainly state systems. But in mid-August, the intelligence comes in. That Russia is penetrating and probing state databases, steal some information. Um, no sign that they're that they've done anything yet mm-hmm. to compromise okay. databases and to get in the way of voting. But it totally freaks out as it should. The White House, they're envisioning an election day where people go to vote, and because voter registration numbers have been changed, maybe the last two digits of a 10-digit number, people, they say, I'm sorry, you're not registered to vote, and that calls into question the whole legitimacy of the of the election. That became a, the sort of the driving concern in the Obama decision-making process about what to do, how to respond to the attack underway. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to you know, do anything to, to make things worse or to, or to give more attention to the Russian attack, thinking that would help the Russians. But really, they were less concerned that the hacked emails could you know, hurt Hillary Clinton that much. They, like probably the Russians and everyone else, they thought she probably would likely coast to victory. Yeah. But they were more yeah. concerned about chaos On election day. Yeah.
0: Uh, I want to ask you about the Obama administration's role in all this because often when the press or Democrats attack. Trump, for ignoring the Russia threat, he deflects and as he often does, and tries to shift blame to Obama, asking, what did the Obama administration do about this when it was actually happening? Does he have a valid point, and, and why didn't President Obama do more in yes. real time?
1: Yes, he does have a valid point on that because the the, the the sad answer is they didn't do that much now, there are a lot of reasons for it. It was a very uh, uh complicated issue, and there were lots of concerns about what the impact of uh, a response in real time would have been in the midst of an election and um as a result uh the obama people got spooked uh, they didn't want to be perceived as political i think obama himself this was part of his own self image is you know he wanted to be perceived as above the fray and not uh, uh could, would not be accused of You know, putting Mm -hmm. his hand, thumb on the scale.
0: As all of this was happening, were there any administration officials who were calling for a stronger response?
1: There were people inside the White House who felt very strongly that uh, if there was going to be a response, it had to be strong, tough and in real time. You can't wait. You can't kick this can down the road for the next administration. And they drew up a lot of very aggressive options, some of which were pretty provocative for basically cyber attacks on Russian news sites and uh, uh, and and going after the online uh, personas that. That were dumping some of the emails like Guccifer 2.0 uh, and other measures, and then some of them were sort of versions of U.S. information warfare as well to. Uh, use the information the U.S. intelligence community had about Putin, the corruption in his government, the corruption in his family, and dump that some on the uh, uh, on the web. Give uh, Putin a taste of his own mm-hmm. medicine, as one of them put it. And um, uh, Obama didn't want to go there, mm. in part for reasons of concerns that it would provoke a cyber war that could escalate out of control. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, you know, there's a scene in the book where Susan Rice, the national security director uh, calls in um, Michael Daniel, who was the White House cyber coordinator, who was developing these I- options and says, stand down. We don't want you yeah. to box the president in uh, by putting together these options. And a lot of people think it was an opportunity lost. And they even even oh. after the election, even after the election, they came up. Very late in the game mm-hmm. with right. uh, a series of sanctions that uh, I did an interview last week with Dan Freed, who was the State Department uh, uh, sanctions coordinator, who said they were very weak. He was extremely frustrated because he didn't yeah. believe that uh, they were nearly strong yeah. enough. There's,
2: there's another chilling scene in the book that's relevant to this. And that is when the NSC folks were coming up with some of these options, aggressive options that Mike just described, they were being discussed by the National Security Council in very, very secretive meetings that didn't really, you know, get out to others on the White House staff. And there was tremendous concern that if you hit back with cyber, you get into a tit-for-tat and it escalates. that was interesting. And the The feeling among some of the uh, cabinet members was that the United States was far more vulnerable to cyber warfare than the United States and could end up the worse in an escalatory uh, conflict. And at one point, uh, the director of national intelligence, uh, James Clapper, says, well, if this happens, if we hit them and they hit it back and it escalates further, they could take down our whole electrical grid. Wow. And so think about that for a second. You know, the president having his hands tied— by his top, top intelligence advisor saying, you know, the whole country could be taken out by the Russians that were that vulnerable. Another
0: interesting aspect of the conundrum President Obama was grappling with is you say that he was very concerned about kicking off a cyber war that he was then going to have to just dump in the lap of a new president who was completely ill-equipped to handle such a crisis.
2: And this is actually a pretty good question almost of game theory. Hmm. Uh the, the, the White House, you know, for the last couple of years prior to this, you know, reached the conclusion that Putin really did believe that the that, that Obama administration wanted to overthrow him. And there was some concern before the elec- election and after the election that if you hit Putin too hard, he would see this as basically a nuclear attack, that you're mm. coming after him. And that even after the election, this would be Obama's last stab getting him out of office. And the Obama people said if we took a, a harder stance with sanctions that that Dan Freed I think rightfully criticizes as moderate for the purpose of sanctions, their concern was if they if they provoked a crisis with Putin. The people coming in, Donald Trump, Michael Flynn, you know, uh, who else was was around the national security team at that time? Virtually nobody. They had a hard time, you know, p- replacing Michael right. Flynn. Right? That, th- that it would be <laughs> unfair to the country mm-hmm. to hand off this geopolitical geo, you know, strategic crisis with Russia as they were coming in. So that was something that did concern them. That's you know, I'm not saying they did the right thing or the wrong thing with the, with the sanctions, yeah. but. What we, what we describe, I think, in Chapter 14 and subsequent chapters are just all the equities and, and, and dilemmas wow. involved. And we yeah. got a great quote when we were finishing up the book from Averill Haynes, who was the deputy national security advisor, who said that this issue, how to respond to Russia, was the hardest question she had ever encountered in her years of working for government.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Mike Isakoff and David Korn when we come back in just a minute. Hey guys, it's never a good look when you untuck a long, bulky dress shirt. You may think it makes you look casual, but more than likely, it just ends up looking sloppy. That's why Untuck It makes shirts specifically designed to be worn untucked. Casual shirts that are not too long and not too short. They're just right. Untuck shirts are my go-to for any occasion from casual to dressy. Since discovering Untuck I may never buy a shirt from anywhere else. Not only do they look good, they feel great. My new favorite is a classic blue chambray button-down that I just got. The fit is great. It's quality material, 100% cotton, so it breathes, and it's the perfect length. In fact, these shirts are designed so well, GQ calls them perfection. With my untucked shirts, I've got stylish casual down. And if you're a woman wishing you could have one of these, well, Untuck It now makes shirts for women too. Shirts for her that are casual, versatile, and designed to last. Log on to UntuckIt.com and check out all the new arrivals. Use the promo code KICK for 20% off your entire purchase. You can also visit one of Untuckit's more than 25 retail locations across the country. Stop hiding your shirt with your pants or your pants with your shirt. UntuckIt.com, your solution to perfecting casual. Use promo code KICK for 20% savings. Hey folks, let me tell you about a company I love. We use them for our 800 number, and if you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, you really need to know about Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you run your business from your cell phone while keeping your business and personal lives separate. Choose from their huge inventory of local, toll-free, and vanity toll-free numbers. Simply forward your new number to your mobile phone and start taking calls immediately. Whether you're in an office, in your car, or out running errands, Grasshopper's iPhone and Android apps help you stay connected to your customers. Not to mention, you can send and receive calls and texts from your business phone number, set up multiple extensions for everyone on your team, get your voicemails transcribed and emailed to you, work from anywhere with call forwarding to make and receive calls from your computer via the desktop app, and even utilize Wi-Fi calling. Better yet, Grasshopper offers easy and instant setup and 24-7 customer support, all without any long-term contracts. Grasshopper, sign up today. Go to grasshopper.com slash kick to get $20 off your first month. That's grasshopper.com slash kick. And now, back to the podcast. Now, a lot of this story really begins with Donald Trump's infamous 2013 trip to <laughs> Moscow. Yes. Infamous. About, Why do you yeah, say I don't, I don't think anyone doesn't know about that at this point, but uh, He's a that, bit confused we about can about do a,
1: a whole po- podcast on <laughs> yeah. the trip yeah. to Moscow. I think we have <laughs> in November 13, yes. Now, officially,
0: he was there for the Miss Universe pageant, yes. but behind the scenes, that trip reveals almost a comical infatuation with Vladimir Putin and yeah. more broadly with Russia. Right. What was it? The, you know, of as that?
1: we, it, it's the first chapter of our book really. And, and, you know, we call it the birth of a bromance uh, the, <laughs> between, uh, between Trump and, uh, and, and Putin. Um Yeah. Look, Trump went there uh, for the Miss Universe pageant, but his real interest was what he'd wanted to do for 30 years, and that is uh, do a business deal in uh, Russia to build a Trump tower, build a a monument to himself with his name on the skyline in the Russian capital. And um, what happens is when he's there, he's sort of yes as you say obsessively focused on uh, trying to get a meeting with Putin he figures uh, that would help grease the skids uh, for um, the business deal he so cherishes uh, he, uh, he had cherishing for so long and uh, as we describe you know, he's constantly asking every, during the uh, two days he was there one night by the way he did spend the night despite his claims to uh, <laughs> James Comey later Uh th- that, uh, you know, is Putin coming? Have we heard from Putin yet? Uh, and, has he uh, called? Has he it's called? It's like high school. Has he called? Has he called me right, yet? Right, I'm waiting. Right. He, yeah. knows, he knows I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, the uh, uh, the cell phone of Aguilarov rings, and it's not Putin. It's Dmitry Peskov, Putin's spokesman. Uh, Aguilarov hands the phone to Trump. You know, Peskov apologizes. The president is tied up. He has a meeting with the the king and queen of Holland who are in in <laughs> Moscow for the day. They were delayed by a traffic jam. He's really sorry he can't make it, but he wants to extend an invitation for Putin to come to the Sochi Olympics coming up and um, he's going to send an emissary to Miss Universe and, uh, you know, of course, uh, Trump is crushed yeah. and uh, disappointed but as soon as he gets off the phone, he said well, um, why don't we tell people he came anyway? Nobody's going to know the difference. <laughs> right? You know, very tr- Trumpian response. Uh, And
2: and there, you know, Trump obviously wanted to get this business deal um, in Russia, and he ends up getting it it, and then collapses in part because of the sanctions. But there are at least two other important things. Uh, He seems to demonstrate almost a psychological affinity for Putin. It's not Mm -hmm. just, I mean, he obviously knows that you can only do business in Russia uh, at, at a high level. Mm-hmm. with the approval of the government and Putin actually is, is leading the government. So he you know wants to you know get Putin on the side for that. But he also from the very beginning of when it's first announced that the contest is going to be held in Moscow is that's the start of this long series of flattering and positive remarks. That he makes about Vladimir Putin right it really starts then he they signed the deal in June 2013 and his first tweet is Miss Universe is going to Moscow will Vladimir Putin become my new BFF <laughs> and at this point in time Putin's widely regarded as a repressive tyrannical autocrat yeah and we saw during the campaign he tries a second run at making a a big deal to build a tower in Moscow, a deal that's being organized by who other than Michael Cohn. And while he's running for president, not telling the public, he has this deal that would make him millions if it could go through. And he's asked about Putin, as you would expect during the campaign trail. And he's asked about sanctions. And he says he's against, more or less against the sanctions. And he says positive things about Putin without telling anybody that he's negotiating to do a deal that would likely be funded by a state-owned bank. And I know, you know, there's a lot of stuff in our book, a lot of stuff that comes out, but the whole idea that the leading Republican presidential candidate, while leading the Republican PAC in late 2015, early 2016, was negotiating a deal that would in essence put him in business with the Russian government, I mean, I don't know. That seems to me yeah. to be bigger than Watergate in a way. And a scandal yeah, all the time. It kind, of, it kind of almost deserves its own book. Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, but it is covered in it is, Russian roulette. That's chapter that's six. reminder. Yeah. <laughs> chapter six. You can read all about it. Right.
0: Now, this Moscow trip is when the famous P tape happened, supposedly. Yeah. You say in this book that Christopher Steele claimed that he or perhaps his source had actually talked to an employee at the hotel who verified that story. Did he? elaborate
1: on that at all? No, he has said very little about the okay. sourcing on this. Uh, he says to protect his sources. And if you read his memo on this closely, you see it's it's not at all clear that any of his sources and we identify who one of the main ones was mm. in the book um, uh, had any first hand knowledge of okay. uh, this event. Uh, okay. uh, nobody had seen such a tape. Nobody was in the room of course with uh, uh Um, uh, with Trump and the alleged hookers who were there. Uh, So, you know, it does remain in the realm of gossip. Now, I should point out... also point out
2: that Steele himself, we quote him in the book, saying now after the fact that he believes there's a 50-50 chance of this happening. Which ain't nothing. It ain't nothing, and it may <laughs> it ain't be... It ain't nothing, but yeah. it's
1: also f- coming from the yeah. guy who first put it into play. Yeah. Uh, it it's it's little, pretty yeah. striking. It Maybe a little overly you know, optimistic. Uh, overly right. optimistic. Now, we do talk about a scene in Las Vegas right. that has gotten some attention, uh, which uh, is new in our book, and this is you know the sort of precursor to the Moscow trip, How mm-hmm. they how they c- came to hold the Miss Universe pageant, in, in Moscow, and that was uh, Trump first meets uh, the Aguilarovs uh, during the Miss USA contest in June of 2013. That's when uh, the Aguilarovs agree to partner on with Miss Universe. And there's a, a dinner in which uh, uh, the Aguilarovs are there. Rob Goldstone, the publicist uh, uh, for Emin Aguilarov, is there. Uh, also, this uh, professional money launderer uh, who worked for Aguilarov is there. And then afterwards, there's an after party uh, at this pretty raunchy Las Vegas nightclub that's known for um, pretty out there acts of sadomasochism, simulated bestiality, other stuff that had it under investigation, Mm -hmm. undercover by the Nevada Gaming Commission for complaints that it may have been in violation of Nevada anti-obscenity laws to be putting on these performances. And as we report, among the yeah. performances that were regular ones, although we don't know it took place the night Trump was there, was uh, a simulated urination uh, b- uh, by women, uh, one on a professor, yeah. another women on each other. So one Typical possibility so. here yeah. is <laughs> exactly. some, there's no nope. hard All evidence right. of this, but given that the, the 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 golden showers seems to have been gossip in the mm-hmm. first place, you know, it's but, a possibility, but the Stormy Daniels scandal
0: and the Playmate and all yeah, these people yeah, who yeah. keep coming out don't exactly do a disservice to this story.
1: Do they?
2: No, well, I mean, no, I mean, uh, you know, what happened in the Las Vegas nightclub. I mean, we don't, you know, there's no indication that they saw anybody peeing on anybody, but you except know, it
1: was and, one of the regular performances, yes, yes. so it's okay. certainly possible it took place. It's as <laughs> I mean, as, it, is as much a, evidence as anything else about this tale.
2: it's it's a theory. What we do mm. know. We do know that in the early 2000s a person who had been a gossip columnist for the Daily News in New York City who had covered Trump was a friend, was a foil, uh, said that in the 90s Trump told him, you got to go to Russia. The women there you know, do things that right. they don't do anyplace else. Uh, we know that prominent people who travel to Moscow and Russia – Really, at any time in the last few decades, under the Soviet Union or under the Russian state, can expect to be monitored mm-hmm. and perhaps recorded. So there is a better chance uh, that if he, what, you know, that if he did anything untoward in Russia at any point in time, that it would have been noted mm-hmm. and used. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just standard operating procedure. Yeah. You know we have a pretty serious TikTok in the book. Of his time in Russia on that particular trip, he was escorted just by his um, bodyguard, you know, friend, and, you know, uh, Keith Schiller, to the hotel. Keith Schiller said that early in the day, someone had come up to them and offered them prostitutes, and Keith Schiller had said, "Oh, we don't do that sort of stuff." Well, I'm, well that's what he tells us anyway. <laughs> that his story is, he took Trump back, you know, he got back to the hotel late that night, early that morning. And we do know he was at a video shoot about 7 a.m. that night. Okay. The next so morning. not a lot of time. So not the, so the window of opportunity. It's <laughs> what so I'm saying is. Yeah.
1: I think you'd have to be highly motivated. Yeah. To make this happen at that point in time. <laughs> and, and and yet and yet, you know, uh, if you read those Comey memos, uh, rebutting this claim was something that Trump was uh, obsessing mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Yeah. And then he makes the claim to Comey in his meeting on January 27th, that he didn't even spend the night mm-hmm. in Moscow. That's so right. when he clearly yeah. did. So, you know, that is the kind of false, yeah. uh, uh, rebuttal yeah. that, you know, has to give yeah. you a
0: little bit of pause. Well, <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you specifically about Christopher Steele, because yeah. you've both met him. Yeah. Does he strike you as a competent, reliable source, or does he strike he you was, as he, someone who has an agenda
1: or an axe no. to grind? He, he did not. He did not. Uh, he, he did not Have a political agenda. He was a serious guy uh, who had been the MI6 uh, expert on Russia. He'd been a... a, a MI6 is the British Intelligence Service. He'd been a British intelligence spy in Moscow um, uh, at the end of the Cold War. He served on MI6. um, The guy in charge of the uh, British intelligence investigation into the assassination of Litvinenko, Alexander Litvinenko, the, the, the dissident who was poisoned in London in 2006. And after that, he forms this private investigative service uh, company that um, developed a specialty in Russia and had become a source for the U.S. government, for the FBI on uh, corruption in uh, Russian soccer that led to the indictments of uh, soccer officials in the United States. Uh, He'd been a source for the State Department on events in Ukraine. Uh, And so when he was hired by Fusion GPS, which was, the uh, uh, private investigative research firm hired by the Democratic Party in the Clinton campaign to do research on Trump and his Russian connections. And he came back with these rather alarming memos about uh, collusion and compromise. Uh, He was taken seriously. People thought that um, these were certainly allegations and reports that needed to be followed off. It doesn't mean that um, uh, all the the, uh, the particulars in those memos are true. In fact, much of them do remain uncorroborated to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, this was not, he wasn't coming at this from the perspective of somebody with a driven political agenda. Okay. And, and
2: and I met him and talked to him about right. 10 days out from the election, in the very end of October. And like Mike, I got you know, my read on him, and I spoke to people who had worked with him um, in, the, in the U.S. government, was he serious, competent, and highly concerned. The context of our conversation was that it was clear to me that he could not quite understand why the fact that the FBI had been investigating Trump and these connections um, had not yet become public or not yet resol- been resolved one way or the other, and he— you know, I, I, I didn't quote him by name, but I quoted him saying, I don't have it in front of me now, something along the lines of, this is something that should concern the Republican Party as well. Mm-hmm. It was clearly not political. He's a national security professional who'd spent his career watching the Russians engage in subversion around the world, and now he saw what he considered to be, you know, the biggest act of subversion of them all, mm-hmm. and we were going into the election without the American public Yeah. Knowing that. And that really had him troubled. That motivated him to talk to me at the time. And it was quite clear to me that he was not comfortable doing that.
0: I mean, as journalists, even if you didn't believe that there was direct collusion, it must have seemed weird to you when... There's a proven effort on behalf of the Russians to destabilize our faith in the democratic system by sowing seeds of doubt that the election might be rigged at the same time as Donald Trump is publicly (laughs) uh, hinting that maybe if I lose, it's because the election will be rigged. Or also when uh, the intelligence community puts out a statement about Russia's attempt to influence and hack the election the very same day, that's
1: when WikiLeaks does the Podesta dump. I mean – that, uh, Seems
0: a little. It does seem a little <laughs>
1: suspicious. No? Yeah. that was quite the. Uh, we have a whole chapter on uh, October seventh, which is really one of the most remarkable yeah. days in in <laughs> American politics. Uh, this is the day that uh, uh, the 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 U.S. intelligence community, the Obama administration, finally is saying something publicly yeah. about the Russian attack. Well, they're it's, confirming it's, that it's, like, it's the
2: Russians, it's, which is historic. Fr- We've never done this
1: before. Unprecedented. Mm-hmm. People in the, uh, 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 the, the, the senior officials in the White House uh, thought this was going to be the big story of the day, (laughs) that it would dominate cable news and everybody would be talking about this unprecedented (laughs) statement. And no sooner does that statement come out than uh, this uh, certain tape uh, emerges. The Access Hollywood Hollywood tape (laughs) tape with Donald Trump talking about what he says about women. And, you know, suddenly all uh, attention shifts Mm -hmm. to the that it becomes you know nonstop on the cable channels and yeah. then what happens uh, within uh, a couple hours after that is suddenly The Podesta emails Mm -hmm. are dumped by WikiLeaks (laughs) on a Friday Uh, evening. On on a Friday, uh, late on a Friday afternoon, and uh, as we point out, you know, as as the entire um, presidential race was engulfed in chaos, um, (laughs) largely because of the actions of Russian intelligence, it just happened to be Vladimir Putin's sixty fourth birthday. You know, and you
2: you you mentioned the word collusion uh, a moment ago. Collusion is not a a legal term, it's an elastic term, that can be used to mean lots of different things. So we don't use the term collusion in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use the, the, the phrase aiding and abetting, mm-hmm. that he made it easier for the Russians to get away with it. And you know, it's my own metaphor that I compare it to a guy standing in front of a bank. The bank's being robbed. He's told the bank is being robbed. But as people walk by, he's screaming, there's no robbery here, nothing to see. Go carry on, citizens. Uh, and so whether he was in on the original caper or not, he is making it easier for the bank robbers to get away mm-hmm. with it. And I really think that's what Trump did. And I and I think he set up this straw man of collusion and, and the Republican Party, I find it really quite discouraging that they've gone along with this definition. And haven't looked at what really happened, and haven't come to terms with what, you know, I think we adequately describe and appropriately describe as Putin's war on America as it was waged during that campaign.
0: Yeah. It seemed like treason to me just to have a presidential candidate publicly encouraging WikiLeaks and the Russians to hack Hillary Clinton in the DNC. It's almost like, imagine
1: imagine if instead of saying it publicly, that had been found in Mm -hmm. some email that gets uh, uncovered by Robert Mueller or somebody else, one would think, there it is. There's (laughs) the smoking gun. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the
0: service that you guys do with this book, Russian Roulette, because for me, you know, I can think of so many individual incidents that I've forgotten about by the time the next revelation comes out. Yeah. And to build a cohesive narrative like this was very helpful for me because at a certain point you have to draw some conclusions about the collective evidence that yeah. we've found here.
2: First, you know, I thank you for your kind words about the book because, you know, when you talk about putting together a coherent Comprehensive narrative to give, to show people the big picture and more and just as importantly, how different pieces of all this because it can be very unwieldy at time how yeah. they fit together uh, is really what we aim to do and what's been tremendously gratifying about the book is not just that it is sold well, which is great for, for authors, but that people have come up to us, many, and have reflected that same sentiment and you know, and, and described the book as a good read, but also as a service mm-hmm. to them to help process the new information that comes out day by day. And um, I look, you know, after our book you know, was done and sort of the week it came out, the House Intelligence Investigation, you know, run by Republicans, collapsed. And it was, you know, it was always, you know, as I said earlier, a clown show and you know, they never seemed to really care most about what was at the heart of the matter here, the Russian attack and any interactions between the Trump campaign and the Russians while the attack was underway and focused on a lot of, you know, side issues to try to diminish the uh, the investigation and claim that the real issue was a, you know, surveillance against Carter Page, you know, who is at the end of the day A side character in a lot Mm -hmm. of this. Um, But what we have found is we've talked to several members of the Intelligence Committee who, who after reading the book, told us they saw things in the book. They read things in the book that they did not know. Really? Now, I mean, that's kind of frightening. They (laughs) did not know and things that were not investigated. And Robert Mueller, you know, is going, you know, great guns, but it's not his job to tell us what happened. It's his job to see if he can find evidence of crimes and prosecute cases. Good point. And in the, you know, in the pursuit of that, putting out indictments, if he takes anything to trial, you know, presenting evidence in court, is how he will tell certain parts of the story. But uh, I can bet you dollars to donuts he will f- discover things that do not fit into criminal prosecutions. And he has no—and in fact, in some ways, he has an obligation not to reveal that material— and he's not obliged to write a massive report at the end, telling the public everything that he knows. Uh, right. So, so, that, so I'm left with, you know, at the end of the day, who will tell the people? We've done. That was that was
1: that's <laughs> what we've done. They can like read the book. A that's right. here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what we've done to the extent we we did it without subpoena power, <laughs> with, with and you know, right. and,
2: and so, but you know, we're still looking forward to. Others out there, yeah. <laughs> you know, digging further and, and, and showing uh, showing the world things that, you know, a couple of things we yeah. just might have missed.
0: Now, uh, before we go, have there been any revelations either in the Comey book or just in general since Russian roulette went to print that have either changed your thinking or strengthened your position on I think this if issue? anything,
1: the, the, the news since uh, the book has come out has only uh, strengthened uh, mm-hmm. the, the, what we Present in the book. Um, certainly, uh, so there's some more details on the social media front, the role of Cambridge Analytica. That's, the, right. the, that's uh, yeah. something that we've learned a lot more since the book came out uh, uh, a month or so ago. I also think the Comey memos are quite revelatory, uh, as a, um, uh, in, in many ways, they, they supplement to a great degree um, uh, what we have in the book. We, the book starts off with an introduction about that moment that Comey briefs uh, Trump. On the, uh, on, the, on the golden shower allegation and uh, how much uh, – just to, to alert the president, then president-elect, this is January 6th of 2017, that this was something that was out there, was being talked about that could get pop in the media at any time and they wanted to let him know. And as we point out, after Comey leaves the room, something Comey can't describe, uh, Trump is quite incensed. He views it as what he calls a shakedown uh a case of blackmail the FBI yeah. like, uh director like who's trying to yeah. hold something over him over him in the way that J Edgar Hoover would have done <laughs> or Trump's old mentor Roy Cohen would have done uh and uh actually when you um read the Comey memos you see that's exactly sort of the way Comey <laughs> was processing it mm-hmm. thinking about what uh 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 Trump's reaction was. So uh, in in a lot of ways, the Comey memos have buttressed our book. And I'm sure there'll be more to come. Well, again, the book
0: is Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. David Korn and Michael Isikoff, thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you. Thanks again to Michael Isakoff and David Korn for coming on the podcast. Order their book, Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump on Amazon or download the audiobook on audible.com. You can keep up with Michael Isakoff on Yahoo News or on Twitter at at Isikoff, and subscribe to his podcast Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can read David Korn's articles at motherjones.com and frequently hear his expert political analysis on MSNBC. Follow him on Twitter at at DavidKornDC. Today's episode was sponsored by Untuck It. It's never a good look when you untuck a long, bulky dress shirt. That's why Untuck It makes shirts designed to be worn untucked. Casual shirts that are not too long and not too short. Shirts that GQ calls perfection. Log on to UntuckIt.com and use the promo code KICK for 20% off. Stop hiding your shirt with your pants or your pants with your shirt. Untuckit.com, your solution to perfecting casual. We're also sponsored by Intercom. Intercom is the business messaging platform that does the manual work for you, automatically qualifying leads and scheduling demos. Their chatbot and messenger free you up to focus on the prospects most likely to convert. You can leave your pipeline to chance or you could use Intercom. Start for free at intercom.com slash growth. That's intercom.com slash G-R-O-W-T-H. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.